Welcome to the Power and Purpose Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Kipp. So thrilled to be with you today. If you're looking for love, you want to rekindle passion, this podcast is for you. I can't wait for you to hear it. It's from Dr. Sue Johnson, who is the author of Hold Me Tight. You can find her over at drsuejohnson.com, drsuejohnson.com. And she's an author, clinical psychologist, researcher, professor, uh, popular presenter, and speaker. And she's innovating everything when it comes to love and couples therapy and uh, just making people really get into their hearts and having incredible relationships. And what I love about it, she has 25 years of peer-reviewed clinical research. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Dr. Sue Johnson. Hello and welcome to the Power and Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Mastin Kip, and today I am thrilled to be with Dr. Sue Johnson, uh, best-selling author, um, love and relationship extraordinaire. Her book, Hold Me Tight, is what we're talking about today. And if you are in a relationship, if you want to be in a relationship, if you used to be in a relationship, if you hate relationships, any of those things, this is for you. This conversation is for you. Uh, We're going to get right down to it. Sue, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, I'm happy to be here. So I want to just, first of all, say thank you for um, this incredible book called Hold Me Tight. Um, I came across it uh, recently from a mentor of mine. And you know, I like to ask mentors um, who, you know, have a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, how should I put it, experience in one topic. If there was one book I could read that would be the most impactful, what would it be? And in the realm of relationships, she said, hold me tight. And it was funny because my girlfriend, Jenna, gave it to me like seven years ago and I'm dyslexic. So I didn't get a chance to read. I don't read. I only read, uh, listen to audiobooks. So Hi. I immediately downloaded the audiobook, and I was just having breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough with this uh book. So I want, there's so much to unpack because I have so many questions. Um, can you just tell me before we get into the questions and stuff like that, if someone is meeting you for the first time, um, what is attachment theory? What is the sort of core premise of hold me tight and why does it matter? It matters because one of the huge um, issues that we've all struggled with as a species for centuries and centuries and centuries is to try and understand um, our relationships with those we love. We know, we know even more now how important they are for our health and happiness. But in a way, we've always known that. The poets, you know, thousands of years ago were writing about it. They just didn't right. do studies that proved that you live longer if you had a happy long-term relationship, <laughs> right? So, you know, we've known that love matters for our health and well-being. Um, and what this new science of bonding, adult bonding does, is it tells us for the first time what love is all about. And it tells us that love makes sense. That's why my second book is called Love Sense. <laughs> love makes sense that we can understand it. And it's not a great mystery. It's not strange, weird, random, you know, something that you just fall into and fall out of. It tells us it makes sense. It tells us what it's about. It tells us what goes, goes wrong. And here's the kicker, why this science is so important. It tells us how to make it work. And it, what you understand, you can shape. And I don't know why, for me, the idea that we've cracked the code of love and that we actually now have a way of shaping our love relationships rather than just having them happen to us that we can actually take some control over this precious part of our lives. I don't understand why that isn't on the front of the New York <laughs> Times. Okay, I don't get it. Okay, I don't get it. I mean, it's like that's at least as important as going to the moon. It's yes. got to be. I mean, you know, I grew up with parents who loved each other and basically spent most of their time destroying each other right? yes. <laughs> you know, in front of my face, which is maybe why that I'm, I always was fascinated by this topic. But so many of us, who doesn't struggle with relationships and who doesn't, you know, I have single people say to me, I don't even know what I'm looking for. You know, how do I know, like, you know, a good boyfriend from a bad boyfriend, a good, you know, and we can answer that. I have people coming into me and saying, I've been married for 20 years. I love this man and I'm alone. I'm alone in this relationship and I'm so angry. And, you know, I don't even really know why I'm angry. And I tell myself I shouldn't be angry and I'm, and I'm upset and I'm scared. And I say, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and it makes sense. And the fascinating the one I really love is that men read Hold Me Tight. 
you know, we mm -hmm. gave copies to, um, I have a soft spot for all the military guys because my dad was a military guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we um, donated a whole bunch of books to the US military, which is a bit ridiculous, really. <laughs> I mean, they've got money for all kinds of missiles, but not for books for their guys. And I would get these emails from these soldiers, you know, and we, we've worked with the military in the States too. And it, you know, we did a whole bunch with Navy SEALs. And these wow. guys wow. write to me and they say, wow. hey, I loved Hold Me Tight. Stupid title, this guy said to me, stupid title. You know, but, but I loved it because nobody ever told me how to do this. Nobody ever told me it makes so much sense. Now I know about this dance and how yes. we can have impact on this incredible dance we do with the people we love. So for me, it's a revolution that this is part of. And it's only, it's only been going for about the last 15, 20 years. Um, we understood bonding between mother and child for about the last 50. <laughs> that's, that's where this work started with a man called John Bowlby in England. Isn't it interesting? An Englishman cracked the code of love. I think that's funny. Okay. It's very ironic. Yeah, it is. It's ironic. Yeah. But, but you know, maybe, you know, he needed it more than anyone else. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> but, I love it. But anyway, you know, that um, science of bonding between mother and child has revolutionized how we see our kids and how we parent. We no so, longer. Let me just pause. Let me pause for one second because what you just said is big and you are such a wealth of knowledge. And I want to just understand for a second what you mean by bonding between mom, uh, the mother, and the child and why that's so important and how that correlates or is related to the love conversation. So can we just um, veer off into a little bit of like why, what's the significance of that? And because I know I work with a lot of people who have had abuse growing up. Um, who there's a lot of people who have had, you know, uh, parents who maybe provide for them financially, but not emotionally, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So w what is this whole concept of like attaching to the mother and how does that play out in, in love relationships? Cause I, I yeah. really want to understand that because I think it's a really core fundamental, um, uh, piece of information that sort of informs hold me tight and is sort of like the, the, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a nucleus of, of this work. Yes. So, uh, I think what we need to remember is way back, not so long ago, um, people were writing about the fact, and there's still a few people who write like this, that, you know, um, we're supposed to be independent and separate. You know, we, we need a little bit of help when we're young, but we're supposed to be, in, we should get independent as soon as possible. And that, you know, mothers holding children and you're know, rocking them to sleep, responding when they cry and this sort of thing was actually bad for children. You know, it was seen as sort of women, it was women's need to be sort of sentimental and gooey, and it was bad for kids. This was very, very prevalent, okay? Um, yeah. Even Dr. Spock said, what you do is you leave your kid to, if your kid cries because he's in the dark and alone, then you leave him to cry, and then he learns that he's fine. And what someone like John Bowlby did was he came along and he studied um, infants after the first, second world war. He studied um, children who'd lost their parents. He studied widows. And it's quite interesting because most of this science with adults too, has come through the channel of understanding people's pain. Okay. Yes. And, and not dismissing it and saying they shouldn't feel it or they're weak, but understanding people's pain. So Bowlby went, and he listened to widows and he looked at these orphans and he went into orphanages and he found, for example, that the kids that were taken out of London in the Blitz and left with families they didn't know in the countryside were infinitely worse off in terms of mental health mm -hmm. than the kids that were left in London within the Blitz with their parents, wow. stuff like that. Okay. And he started taking mothers and infants into his lab in London and getting the mother to leave the room and come back into the room. And what I just said sounds so simple, okay? It's such a simple idea. Let's look at this basic human drama of separation and reconnection. Yes. And, and it's, 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 it's so mm. basic, okay? It's so basic, okay? It's like what else is there in life to struggle with besides That's death? basically it. <laughs> yeah, well, vulnerability, death, and separation and reunion, that's, that's the whole of life there, okay? So on an emotional level. 
And he started seeing these amazing emotional responses. And he started just studying them and finding. And he basically said, listen, this is who we are. We're bonding animals. Yes. And love is not a strange mixture of sex and sentiment. It's not that. Whether you're a child or whether you're an adult looking for a relationship, it's an ancient wired-in survival code that's mm -hmm. designed to keep someone who will come when you call close to you. It's a resource. Your brain, the new research says, your brain actually assumes, you know, you think of how vulnerable our children are for years and years and years, more vulnerable than any other species. Your brain assumes that when you call, someone will come. And when you're little, it's very true. You call, no one comes, you die. Yeah. Okay, and, and that vulnerability is wired into your nervous system. So Bowlby said, this, hmm. is, this is about, look at these mothers and infants. They need proximity. They need connection. And Harry Harlow started looking at baby monkeys and couldn't figure out why when he took perfectly healthy baby monkeys and put them in a cage by themselves, they all started dying. They said, well, yeah. what, what, what the hell's happening? Why would they all start dying? Well, because their whole nervous system starts to go into meltdown. They're filled full of stress hormones. Their immune system stops happening, right? I mean, it's, and so these folks said, this is who we are. We need, we're bonding mammals. We need safe haven relationships with a few people on this planet who will be there for us, who will be responsive to us, that we can turn for safety and when we can do that, it tranquilizes our nervous system, gives us balance, and it allows us to grow and thrive and deal with our vulnerability in a positive way. It, it, you know, the essence of strength, and forgive me if I get a little male and female here. No, okay? well, and that's some of my questions, so please do. All right, so the essence of strength in uh, what we told men right? Which is, I think is, is baloney, but that's what we've told me. The essence of strength is to deny your vulnerability. Yes. And, and actually to be as invulnerable as possible. All our movies, you know, are all about these invulnerable superheroes, right? That's right. And, um, you know, this is, this is the image of strength in our, in our culture, but that's actually such a con because on some human level, we know in our bones, the, the essence of strength is to know you're vulnerable and know that we're better together and that reaching for other people is a, is a, a, you know, that's just who we are. So we are vulnerable and we can deal with it constructively. And Bowlby said, a happy, healthy child calls to the mother when she, the child needs contact or the child gets threatened or is uncertain and the mother responds and as the mother responds, the child's heart rate changes. There's different hormones going into this child's blood. Stress hormones go down. And the child basically sort of reaches this emotional balance where they can play. They can go out into the universe and explore. You know, if you have your balance, think about it in terms of dance. You can move. I dance tango. Okay, I dance Argentine <laughs> tango. Right? So, so... And of course I do, because it's all about attunement and that's what love's mm -hmm. all about too. Okay. So it's the same stuff. So, but if you have your balance, you can choose how to move and what to pay attention to. If you're losing your balance all the time, you think this, this person you rely on isn't going to be there for you, doesn't care, is going to turn away from you, or you're busy numbing out and not that's trying right. not to need this person. You have no balance, right? You, right. you can't deal with yourself you can't deal with anybody so Bowlby said we know what these people these kids basic needs are and that we know who we are now as bonding animals we need these safe haven relationships when we have them we thrive okay and we we know that healthy kids reach for mothers and good in good relationships the mothers respond and then the kid comes together with the mother and then they can both be separate and he saw all these patterns, these dances. And of course, what happened, duh, you know, sometimes it, we're slow, you know, human beings. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, so this, this changed, this changed um, parenting forever. And mind you, everyone hated him at first. People said, no, no, you're wrong. Children should be left to cry. And, you know, 
we don't need that much closeness it's bad for us right and so but basically it revolutionized how we saw our kids we don't drop our kids off at the hospital anymore and walk away for five days we forget that's what we used to do okay so it changed everything and then around um in the 1990s folks like me and because I was working with couples all the time and folks like social psychologists and people who studied the brain, okay, um, started applying this to adults. And they said, of course, duh, it doesn't end at 12. Okay. Sure. It's like, it goes. No, everyone's, the- everyone's just 12 years old emotionally, but they just, their body gets older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, but actually, when you're holding your someone's hand who you know cares for you, so you're not alone, your emotional age could go up. Okay, it's for like sure. yeah. But um, Bowlby basically said emotional isolation is traumatizing for human beings. I mean, that's why we have this big thing, this big fuss in Canada right now going on about putting people in um, solitary confinement in our jails. Okay. Big, big fuss because of pe- cause people go insane. Yeah, people, because of that lack of connection. They go so, completely insane. So, so one of the th- – well, so a couple of things. First of all, if, if all you did was just listen to what you just said on repeat like maybe a thousand times, I think that would be the most important thing if you listen to this podcast because that's like – what you just said is a fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we think about relationships and love um, and parenting and trauma healing. So – a couple of things. First of all, in your book, what I love about your book is that it's a conversations between couples that actually happened yes. so that if there's an understanding of how to do this process. Um, but the other thing that I, I liked about it was that in the conversations, both partners took accountability or responsibility for how they were showing up, how they got triggered. And I love this idea that you call the demon dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering if you could, because here's the thing, and this is where it gets a little tricky. When you look at someone like, we'll just sort of say for the most part, this is a gross generalization, but it's, it's kind of true. We'll just say that the masculine partner tends to be more narcissistic. And let's say the feminine partner tends to be a little more sort of codependent in that way. One of the things that we see a lot uh, with people who come into our seminars or our courses or on our, on our, um, in our world it's t- typically a woman who's just given and given and given and given and given and never really received uh, all that love back. Yeah. So my question for you is, where is the, 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 the borderline or the boundary between like a healthy attachment like you're talking about where you come to someone else, there's responsivity, there's those, you know, the, the, what is, uh, um, the, the R process um, where someone is really being responsive to, to their partner versus a codependent pattern. Because one of the things that I think is like, I wondered about this book was like, okay, self-reliance. Like you got like, you know, you know, Abraham Maslow and Wayne Dyer and all those guys talking and, you know, all the whole transcendentalist movement talking about self-reliance. Yeah. And then you have attachment theory talking (laughs) about attachments. And I see people who get enmeshed, commingled, you know, in, you know, abusive or traumatic relationships um, over and over and over again. So can you help me understand where is the line between self-reliance uh, and healthy attachment patterns? Because Okay, I can try. Sure. Um, I think we need a new concept. We need the concept of constructive dependency. In a good relationship, okay, um, a couple come together and support each other and connect with each other, and that makes them stronger. You grow yes. and become more of yourself with another person, not by shutting other people out. Okay, you grow with another person. What you're talking about, and those words, by the way, I want to tell you, I'm going to be straight with you. I hate those words. Okay, I hate the word narcissist and codependency. Or sure. I hate them. Okay, so let's just get that straight for a start because they're blaming as hell. All right. So, oh, okay. So, um, I love that. Well, I, I'd like to know more about that here in a second. Okay, so the point is, what you're talking about is you're talking about, Bowlby said, um, attachment says, if you have a healthy relationship, you can reach for your partner in a way that pulls your partner close. And that's what we teach people to do. That's the whole point of reading Holby Tight. That's what we teach people to do in our therapy. We've been doing it for years. We have 
the best marital therapy in the world. We have 17 outcome studies. We're kind of the top of the heap in terms of the, the couple therapy world in helping people repair their relationships, okay? And that's where Hold Me Tight came from. So, and now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, okay, no, we're talking about the difference between like self-reliance yes. and healthy Okay, so what Bowlby said, in a safe relationship where you're both accessible and responsive to each other, when you've learned to do that, you can reach for each other and then you, you embrace for a moment and then you get your balance and then you can stand on your own. The thing you're talking about is what Bobby said is it's called anxious attachment where yes. you don't know how to reach for the person. The person doesn't know how to reach back. And maybe you had parents like that. So even when you're reaching, some part of your brain says, this isn't going to work. I don't know how to do this. Maybe I'm not important to this person. So you plug into all this negative emotional music and you reach in a critical way often or your partner doesn't know how to respond everything goes wrong and you start to feel this need it comes like online you don't know what to do with it nothing works and you get desperate and pushy That's and right. it happens to all of us okay i know how i know this stuff backwards when i'm in a fight with my husband <laughs> for some sure part of, yeah some part of my brain says oh look Look, man. Oh, isn't that interesting? You're doing this. So totally. you know, we get Limbic critical. System. Thank you so much. <laughs> we say you're, you're late. You know, why are you late? You're always late. Your whole family's late. Genetically, you're late. You know, there's something wrong with you. you. You're late because you don't care about me. You know, you've never cared about anyone. And here we go. Right. And of course, what I'm desperately really trying to say is I got really hurt that you were late. I'm feeling like I'm not important to you. And that scares the hell out of me. But I don't say that. I say, you're late, and we blame and we push. And that's part of what we call the demon dialogue. What the other person hears is, I failed. I've blown yep. it. I'm bad. I'm a bad partner. I've disappointed her. That's I right. Never, I don't know how to please her. I'm never going to please her. Maybe there is something wrong with me. Oh, my God. And the other person shuts down and doesn't want to talk and says, I don't want to talk about this or I don't know what to do with this. And the more that person shuts down and shuts the other person out, the more desperate the other person gets. So what you're talking about there is a dance, a dance between two people. And if we understand it, we can help couples shift it. What we did with it as mental health professionals is take one person and label them because we didn't know how to look at dances. I know this sounds funny. It makes we, total sense though. We, we didn't know how to look at interactions between people and see the impact they had. So we just looked at individuals. So we said to the woman who was being desperate and pushy, well, there's something wrong with you. You're, you're, you know, you're codependent. You shouldn't need this. Instead of saying, oh, wait a minute, what's happening here in this dance? Um, what happens to you that you suddenly get so pushy? could you help me this? You're getting desperate and help me understand that. And we do that. And we see that these women who've been labeled codependent can reflect on what's happening to them, can understand, can say, you're right. You're right. I do get angry. You're right. I, I, I do push him away because I feel so lonely and he's not yeah. listening and I'm calling and calling and he's not listening and I don't know what to do. And we say, Wow, that's amazing what you just said. That takes so much so courage. Yeah. Can you turn and tell him? So she turns and tells him. She says, I don't know what to do when I feel so disconnected from you. I don't know what to do. So I, I do. I, I find something to poke you with. I poke you and poke you to get you to respond to me. And she says it. And I look at her, man, and he, and you could call him then. You could say he's narcissistic because he looks at me. Um, with big wide eyes, like a train's about to hit him, okay? And he doesn't do anything. <laughs> He's like, so, oh my God. And, yeah, that's right. I say, what did I do wrong now? Right, right. Oh you got I'm it. I'm a total failure. You got it. I say, what's it's happening? All about to you? me and my failures. <laughs> yeah, and he says to me, what did she say? I said, oh, you, how, wow, you screened that out. What happens to you when she says this? And he says just what you said. He says, all I hear is that I've, I've completely failed. Yep. I'll never please her. I'll never please her. I say, and that's terrifying for you. He says, yes, it's terrifying. So we don't teach men the strength in being able to look inside and say, oh, 
my body's going into this terror state. And, you know, it's not about whether you're weak or not. It's about that you're a bonding animal and you've just heard that you're getting rejected. And your yes. brain, that's a danger cue for your brain. People don't understand that. It's a danger cue. It's, as, it's your brain takes the pain of rejection and in the same part of the brain and process it in the same way as you stepping on a nail. It's yes. a danger cue. Okay. Yep. So the man says, this is just dangerous. It's just dangerous. I want to get out of here. So yep. I say, good. So tell her, can you turn and tell her, please? I don't know how to listen to you because it's so hard for me to hear that I failed again. I've disappointed you. I feel so hopeless. Some part of me just wants to run because I don't think I, I know how to give you what you want. And then his lady, her whole face softens and her eyes fill with tears. And she says, oh, sweetie. And he looks at me and says, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> no, exactly. What just happened? I don't know what just happened. And, what I, and, and, it's a good, I, and I say to him, hey, man, what just happened is that you just showed up emotionally. You yeah. don't need to be perfect. You yeah. don't need to be a movie star. You don't need to be any of that stuff. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to perform. We've taught men to perform, right? You don't need to perform. You, you need to be there for her emotionally. That's what she needs. And that's what you need from her. And he says, you mean that I could just turn and say to her, I don't, I don't know what to say when you tell me this. I'm worried that I'm disappointing you. You mean that's going to work? I said, well, it just did, didn't it? Why don't you yeah. try it again? Yeah. And this is the demon dialogue that we get caught in. One pushes for connection. The other person just feels the push and moves away. The dance could go on for years. People get amazingly unhappy. They feel rejected and abandoned. And we teach couples and hold me tight, you see couples you know, in hold me tight, helping each other out of this by saying things like, hey, we're stuck in that spiral again. Hey, we're stuck in our thing. You know, and uh, I have one couple who said, we're stuck in the nothing. Because he, the he, would, story. The nothing, like he would say to her, <laughs> you're angry at me, what's wrong? And she'd say, nothing, nothing, nothing. Right? And, and he'd say, there is, there is. He said, no, nothing. And he says, right, there's nothing in this relationship. Oh, and then they'd go away, right? So you can say, he'd say, we're stuck in the nothing. I love I that. I don't like it. I'm all by myself. This I is love man, that. Bless his heart. He says, I'm all by myself. And his wife turns and says, you're right. I'm all by myself too. This is horrible. And they hug. Yeah. And then, and then he says, what were we fighting about? I totally. I love that. This emotional responsiveness and connection is what bonds people, whether they're 3, 33, or 73. By the way, the other thing about all this is if you can deal with this disconnection and find ways to come back together, um, there's no reason at all why love can't last. I, I think we got it wrong. We thought the problem in couples is uh, conflict, Conflicts, just the inflammation. Right. It's not the root the, cause. The virus is emotional disconnection and not mm. knowing what to do. Oh, about it. girl, preach. Okay. So that was just like what you just said is everything. The virus, the root cause of why we have uh, disharmonious relationships is emotional disconnection. Frame it, tweet it, memorize what Sue just said. That is incredible. <laughs> Sorry, that was just. That's basically it. So this actually brings me to a question I've been dying to ask you since I read the book. Okay. So I'm a big believer in, for example, uh, I'm a mass, I'm, I'm a pretty masculine guy. I like to work okay. out. I like to you know, lift weights. I do yoga uh, to become flexible. I'm, I'm not really into, like, I, I like meditation, but I, I'm more in like the sort of meat and weightlifting category. I have, I take great care of my body, but like, I like, I like to mess around with my guy friends. I like to be passive aggressive. I like to, you know, one-upsmanship them. They want up me. We want to be each other. I love that. Now I can't do that in my relationship with my girl, nor would I ever act that way, say with a, a female client, because it's just, it's, it's not the same type of communication. And I'm a big believer in like anima anima, sort of Jungian psychology. Um, uh, you know, I've studied a lot of like David Data's work around like that masculine presence and polarity and like Dr. Patricia Allen's work, the whole conversation around getting to I do and polarization where you have the masculine and the feminine elements of a relationship. And I've seen that 
in working with like gay couples, for example, there is a level of polarization. It tends to switch, but there is one part that tends to be more anchored in the masculine, one that tends to be more anchored in the feminine. And I've noticed, and I really like your thoughts on this, it seems as if the masculine partner is always the subtext of their communication is, did I do a good job here? And the subtext of the feminine partner is, am I safe? That's kind of what I've noticed. No matter what they're actually saying, yeah. that's kind of what they mean. Well, I'm I think, wondering, I'm sorry? Yeah, I think some of that is gender training, okay? We, for, for centuries and centuries, women have had to rely on men and please men to survive. For one thing, they're very vulnerable when they're giving birth and protecting young, right? So it makes sense that women have been tuned in to connecting, to creating these safe connections. Are you, the basic question is, are you there for me? Yeah, that's the yes. big question in relationships. Can I count on you? <clears throat> and men have been taught to ignore those needs, put them aside, and focus on performance, focus on, you know, um, doing things like getting together and, you know, building houses, you know, creating protection. I mean, those roles have got polarized. And there's nothing wrong with those roles if they work for you and they feel good to you. The trouble is then when you come together with somebody in a relationship, what are you going to do with that? What I see yes. when I see in our hold me tight education groups and in therapy over the years is that when two people realize that whether you like it or not, male or female, your nervous system's the same. Emotional isolation is traumatizing for men and women, yes. whether you're a Navy seal or a, you know, the most female woman you can imagine in some level, we're all the same. And what I see is that couples can come together and they can become more whole. Women, when they feel, good, good example of this, lovely study by a woman called Brooke Feeney found that young career women, right, who were having to go out and perform, um, when they said they were safely connected with their partner and they could um, rely on their partner and confide in their partner when they felt vulnerable, they um, were more confident out in the world. I believe they, it. They took more risks. They felt more sure of themselves. Of course they did. Somebody had their back. Yep. And their, they met their career goals faster. Amazing. And I've had, I've had um, you know, special forces guys say to me, um, yeah, I can go out and do my job and put my feelings aside. But when I'm coming back to camp in that helicopter, um, I'm talking to my wife in my head. And yeah. I'm talking to my wife about the dreadful things I've seen. And the best thing I can do to calm myself is to imagine her arms around me mm. and to know that I'm going home and mm. she'll be there for me. So I think we can, um, you know, we can come together and we can grow into more whole people where we can be male and female, but we're not stuck in those stereotypes. You know, yes. Ideally, you, sh you could go out and drink with the boys and have incredible sort of male fun, and you can also come home to your lady that's right. and dip into your vulnerability and still feel that that's you – know, it takes a lot of courage to do that. It's, it's, it's male on a different level, right? Right. And first of all, I mean, you're completely helping um, our listeners redefine what masculine is, especially hearing about like special forces guys and, you know, what's yeah. going on. I think that's incredible. My question is, you know, the, 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 the big through line has been um, that I've sort of latched onto has been that polarity is what creates passion. Um, like if you have a masculine and a feminine presence, if I have two feminine presence <laughs> or two masculine presence, then I'm either going to, I'll have a friendship you know, we're like, maybe we're married and we're roommates or we're married and we're best friends, but there's not that sexual passion that, that, you know, can last a lifetime. So my question is like, how do you create, or do we need to create polarity to have passion? What is passion to you? And how do we create it long-term? Because I think that's like, we talk about cracking the code of love. Most people think that relationship is like a year or two of like amazing sex and all the chemicals are running. It's like oxytocin bath every day. You know, it's just like this incredible um, dopamine, you know, serotonin rush and everything is amazing. And then it's just boring until they die. Like that's kind of well, like how people think about marriage. That's because right? they're not paying attention. Yeah. They, they don't know how to dance together. And, and that's because that's because we haven't taught them any people, anything about love. This idea I'm kind of, you know, I get this all the time. 
okay, every journalist out there in the last 20 years has now decided that they're an expert on love and they're <laughs> definitely an expert on passion. So, so what you just said is like, for me, it's like the most boring point of view in the world, okay? Basically, the evidence is, and I put this in, in my book, Love Sense, the best survey research in the world, which comes out of the University of Chicago, says that the people who have the best sex most often enjoy it most and find it the most thrilling are people in good long-term relationships, and it can last over time. What is passion? Passion is this need for connection, and it's, it's physical, but it's also emotional. Sex is a bonding activity in, 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 in bonding mammals, okay? Passion, yeah, I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about voles, uh, you know, all yeah. kinds of bonding mammals, okay? So passion is this need for connection, and it it's all gets mixed up with sexual desire, and then it goes into this attunement. People, you know, swans actually imitate each other physically before they mate. They tune into each other. They move their necks in certain, they do mating dances, right? And we call it foreplay, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they do mating dances. What is it? They're tuning into each other, right? They're tuning into each other. And then they create this safety, this synchrony where they can play together and they move into erotic play. That's passion. You can't have it all the time. We're so greedy as human beings. We want the good stuff every minute on tap, right? <laughs> yeah. But there's nothing like that, okay? So you can't have it all the time. But you can fall in love with somebody again and again and again and get disconnected and reconnected and have that passion all through a lifetime. And I know this is true. So this idea that we have to be um, somehow separate and self-sufficient and then, we come, and then we, we come together for a moment and if we're really close and emotionally connected and find this dependency on each other, we lose all the spark is, is horseshit, okay? <laughs> I love it. And I'm sick of it. I'm Tell sick of it. Tell me how you really feel, Sue. Yeah, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I love I'm, it. I'm sick of it. And I'm it's a con. And people, it's misinformation. And it's just sensationalist rubbish. You know, and, it, and uh, people say, well, you can't have long-term relationship. And this kind of emotional safety you're talking about and passion. I said, what are you talking about? Like erotic play, dancing together is like, this amazing, do you know how coordinated you have to be to do that? It's like putting a piece of Ikea furniture together, okay? <laughs> together, together, right? Ikea furniture <sighs> drives everyone nuts. I don't know how they've ever survived that company. And to do it as a couple, I mean, that's a challenge. Well, that's what good sex is. It's yes. like I dance tango, right? It's like tuning into somebody and mirroring their body and um sort of allowing yourself to be carried away. i give you another example. Being carried away by passion. So if you think about it, it's like being on a zip line going over a canyon. You yes. know you're strapped in, right? You yes. know you're strapped in. You look up and you see, I'm strapped in. Yes. So then you, you feel safe. So then you go, wee, and you Amazing. allow yourself to experience being carried away by the passion. But if, just as you were about to go out on the zip line, you suddenly thought, uh, that looks a bit frayed. I'm not <laughs> sure that's going to hold me. I don't know here. And you have this reservation and your body is distracted by that. You are not going to feel the thrill. That safe connection allows you to play and explore. And we know that. This is this, I'm not just talking out the top of my head here. That's research behind everything I'm saying. Okay. Safe connection allows you to play in bed and out of bed. You know, what's... Uh, I can, I've been married for um, 28 years now. Wow. Okay. And, wow. you know, my husband's a pretty manly man. You know, he's off hiking up some damned mountain actually <laughs> in, in Europe right now. Okay. Well, I'm sitting here talking to you. From, That's but, amazing. you know, he's, you know, and he, you, you would see us that way, but we, we play and you see it when we talk, we bounce off each other. We challenge each other. You know, he'll say something to me to challenge me and I'll challenge him back. And there's, that's all this um, play in that. Okay. And, but it's safe. 
it's 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 so no we've we haven't understood love and we haven't understood passion and the two of them go together but now we are and what we see is when people can not only step out of their negative cycles of these demon dialogues but they can create turn and bond share their fears share their needs and bond with each other and create what we call hold me tight conversations yes which what are they, incredible yeah what they tell us clearly again and again um is that their sex life improves of course it does you know you you know in bed out of bed you know, we separate them too much you know if i can play and if i trust you and if i can relax with you and let go and i can also push against you you know in bed out of bed then i can do it in bed this is it's the it's the, the music between the couple that is where the electricity mm. is and that's amazing which safe, doesn't just happen five minutes before you want to take her to bed <laughs> i well, just tell yeah. like a lot of my guy clients like put, you know four plays usually starts 24 hours beforehand <laughs> yeah <laughs> right but we haven't understood this dance we haven't understood the dance between lovers either in bed or out of bed we haven't understood that what kills it is emotional disconnection and there's lots of research now by the way there's lots of really good research that's saying especially for women um there's women's brains women are vulnerable in sex okay they're smaller they you know they're going to be penetrated okay they're just vulnerable Okay. Never mind about them getting pregnant. I mean, in the moment they're vulnerable, they're just yes. vulnerable. And the research says that um, when a couple get turned on, when people get turned on by sexual cues, it's like the man goes straight into sexuality. It's almost like his prefrontal cortex is irrelevant. He doesn't. <laughs> he, okay. He totally. Doesn't. Yeah. Not I'm not, not yeah. Here. Okay. That's right. Okay. But the woman's prefrontal cortex turns on. Which is all about discernment. And- Bef- before, before she allows herself to be aware of her body being aroused. So get this, huh. her body can be aroused. She's phys- you could say she's aroused, but her brain goes and checks with her prefrontal cortex and then almost like gatekeeps, decides whether to allow that arousal to come up and turn into desire. And that makes total sense. So the research particularly is that I think it's true for men too. Okay. But the research is um, for women, you know, this is a huge issue. It's like they check out, am I safe here? If I am, I can play, I can relax with you. We can, you know, we can play all kinds of roles. We can do whatever you want. Right. But if I'm not safe, oh, that's a whole different, then I'm going to perform. I'm going to perform to please you. That's probably one of the reasons why I think a lot of women have a hard time um, that we've seen uh, getting to a place of orgasm because there's a performance versus being safe. Yeah. It's like going through the motions. You you can't. And you know what we know of men who say, um, who are sort of phobic of needing anyone and who say, I don't want to need anyone. And I'm, I'm, I don't believe in that. And I don't need relationships and I'm self-sufficient if we call them avoidant of attachment, okay, they've decided that basically they've decided other people are too dangerous. That's, you know, they'd yes. never say that, but that's the truth. Wow. What we know is that they enjoy sex less. They're into performance and sensation. So, you know, they want a bigger and bigger orgasm. But if you actually ask them about their sex life, they enjoy sex less than men who are more secure with their partners, who can reach for their partners, who are more emotionally open. Your emotions are in the body. You know, emotionally right. open, physically open goes together, right? And, of course, the other thing is that um, now, in terms of sexuality, all over North America and all over Europe, we're seeing young men who cannot get erections because they have trained their sexuality for by looking at hours and hours and hours of porn since they've been about 12 years old. And those guys for sure need safety. They need safety, a relationship where they can be themselves and where they can start to really be with a real woman and, you know, put those sort of messages aside, those images and those, you know, if you look at porn, it's, it's terrible for men and women it's how to be lousy lovers, basically. You know, the men are completely into being just performing studs, right? right. Nobody, nobody's emotionally present. That's and right. the women are into being these sort of submissive, pleasing objects. 
that is, if I look at porn and what I see is astounding, astounding loneliness. Because, you know, we're just, if you actually thought those people actually made love like that, usually, (laughs) just imagine how damned lonely they'd be, right? The emotional connection is the real meat of the thing is, is missing, right? Yes. Which is, I mean, so incredible. You know, um, I think that's a really incredible aha moment to think that both partner partners have to feel a level of emotional safety to step into that, that core, um, where anything is sort of possible, which I think is, uh, just fantastic and, um, just, um, powerful. Now, let me ask you a question I've noticed, and sometimes I get in trouble for saying this, but sometimes I don't, I've noticed that because I, I work with mostly women and, you know, they come on retreat or they come to an event and, you know, they're wanting to lose weight or they're wanting to rekindle passion or they're wanting to find a relationship or they're wanting to start a business or, to, you know, get a job that they love. And when we get down to like the root cause, cause I'm a root cause kind of guy, um, you know, you, usually there's some level of trauma from childhood. It could be significant yeah. or it could be like my dad was 10 minutes late picking me up. I decided I'm not enough or whatever. So, and you know, trauma is trauma is trauma is trauma. Um, so I'm kind of wondering when you think about having a hold me tight conversation or being in a relationship like you're describing, I can imagine a bunch of people basically saying, what the hell are you talking about? I have never, you're, you're talking about Mars right now. This is so far away. Yeah, you, you better know? believe me. So yeah, how, right. how does someone who, you know, say was traumatized either, you know, I mean, we've had, I've had clients who have experienced up to 60 sexual abuses before the age of 10. You know, I've had clients that have been physically abused. I've had clients that have been emotionally abandoned, if you will. Um, and then things are less significant. But how do you, you know, because when, when, like you said, emotion, trauma, it's in the body. It's the subconscious mind. Candace Pert tells us this is the body, basically. So how do you, like, <laughs> how should I put this? All that trauma produces irrational uh, and uh, unconscious fear that runs us almost automatically. I call those things survival patterns. How do we elevate or heal from that? Because, you know, you could be a 60-year-old woman and never had healed what happened when you were five. So how do you, how do you elevate or heal those traumatized parts of yourself to be available for a type of relationship that you're talking about? Like, how, how does that, I mean, I know it's probably like a, 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 a significant, we could probably write a whole book on that answer, but sure. if you think <laughs> about, if you, yeah. <laughs> so if you think about like healing trauma as it relates, cause like for some people, like the idea of relying on somebody else, a man, like, you know, the brain generalizes that one man that did all that stuff to me, every man is like that, you know? So it's like, how do we, how do we step over that trauma, over that irrationality, over those sort of unconscious patterns? You have to have a new experience. I'm sorry. You have to have a new experience. That's it. No amount of insight. I mean, insight can help you understand what's going on. You could try new skills out, like, you know, risking with people. But from my point of view, that's just the surface stuff. To change it, you have to have a new experience. And we're one of the few, in fact, I think, yeah, we're one of the few um, uh, areas in North America, labs in North America, that have actually done research with these kinds of couples. And working with people who have been traumatized as children in relationships that are now distressed, okay? You have to have a new experience. You have to be in that place of fear and have someone support you to risk rather than to run away or shut down or get enraged. And the the therapist has to help. Either the therapist has to respond to you if you're in individual therapy or a partner has to be helped to respond to you. And when that happens, things change. You get a corrective experience that you can have this connection with people. And I've worked with uh, severely traumatized people. You know, I worked at the hospital for years and we used to get folks who'd been severely traumatized in childhood and now we're trying to have a relationship and of course nobody'd help the partner to understand the ghosts that his wife was walking through to try and get to him nobody helped him understand that standing by behind him were the father and the older brother who or the uncles who abused her so he didn't know what he was dealing with and nobody helped her deal with those emotions so that she could 
begin gradually and gradually to take risks with him. So people can do it. Here's the thing that I've learned and what attachment science says, but never mind what couples have taught me over the last 30, 35 years, okay? Because we've been doing these studies with distressed couples for all these years. Here's the thing. This longing for connection is wired in. It is the most basic longing. It is bigger than sex or aggression. It's wired in. It's wired into your bones. And the reason why I go and talk to people and people weep when I talk is because on some level, you know all the stuff I'm talking about. Science takes what we know implicitly and makes it clear and puts it together in a way that makes sense, okay? We know this in our bones. And these, it's not just women who are traumatized. Men have been traumatized too. These people who've learned that other people are dangerous and that vulnerability will kill you, they still have this longing for this connection. They feel the emptiness of not being able to find connection. And what we do is we tune into that longing, we validate it, we help them understand it, and we help them find safety in their relationships or or with us in therapy so that they begin to learn what safety feels like in their body, what yes. it tastes like. You, you, you can't do this just in your head, okay? It's like what it tastes like to be vulnerable with somebody in a room and to know that it's okay. You're not going to die. You know, the person isn't going to hurt you and to start to be able to stay there and deal with that and learn to create a trusting relationship, a bond. To be honest with you, um, I mean, some people I've worked with have been so traumatized that they, they, they have to start with an animal. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to, a woman came to see me because her horse had died. She said she was going to commit suicide. And mm-hmm. everybody at the hospital said, well, she's crazy. I said, well, no, let's just talk to her. You know, <laughs> she wasn't crazy at all. You know, like her, it, it's nothing crazy about, you know, you're being bonded with your horse. If, if you feel other human beings have proved so dangerous to you. Yes. Right. She would go and sleep beside her horse in the barn. Right. Wow. So. And others of us, wow. I've also worked with other people who turn to God. Yeah. Uh, I've worked with, you know, Christian couples. We've, we've uh, taken Hold Me Tight. We've also adapted it. I was asked to do this. So we've adapted it for Christian couples. And, you know, people who've been very hurt in their lives, they find solace with God. You know, you read the Bible, we talk about God as an attachment figure. He's the father, you know, abide with me. My, I used to sing in a cathedral when I was young and you know, my favorite psalm was 23rd Psalm. About, you know, um, I mean, it's just the Lord's my shepherd, right? It's, it's so we need this safe connection. And yes, of course, it's terrifying sometimes, especially if we found that other people can hurt us. The irony is in love, we have this longing, it's wired in, right? We have to, if you're not going to listen to it and find a way to answer it, you're going to have to spend your whole life trying to cut it off. It's going to be incredible hard work. We have this longing. We need connection. We thrive in connection. We grow in connection. And at the same time, we're amazingly vulnerable. Yes. to the people we love. And yes. that's kind of why poets and, and you know, philosophers yes. down the ages have been obsessed with love because it's love got it. this dark and light and dark piece, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sue, I got to tell you, I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I would like to actually maybe do a follow-up call with you at some point. Sure. To go deeper because this is just, I can't believe an hour has flown by, uh, flown by so quickly. Um, I want to just ask one last question for this one and maybe maybe you'll come back for another one. Um, this has just been so delightful. Um, and I mean, just a fantastic conversation. Um, I guess my last question for you would be, um, how should I put this? What advice do you have for, um, couples who are in the process of one, one partner getting sober and changing the rules? If that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, well, we work with quite a lot of, we work with all kinds of couples, okay? So we, we work with addiction couples, um, whether it's sober or whether it's, you know, other kinds of addiction. I worked with a couple just recently where the man was addicted to poker. 
he spent his whole life playing poker all night. Okay, or he was losing his job. He was, you know, he he was all he could do, and all he wanted to do was win, right? Win at poker. Okay, he was losing his family. Okay, so <clears throat> what we see that is, a, and there's research coming out on the addiction. No matter what kind of addiction, is a substitute for this positive dependency I'm talking about. It's a substitute, and you know I talk about it like that I say to a man in my office the other day I said well he says well I don't understand you know why she's so obsessed with this and what does it matter to her you know if I drink you know she goes to bed and I drink I said well you're having an affair with the bottle he said what are you talking about I said you turn to the bottle not to her you rely on the bottle when you're upset you go to the bottle you you put the bottle first. You drink even when it upsets her, and she says she's going to leave you. You depend on this escape that the bottle gives you, this feeling of release, and you know, um, and you don't turn to her, so she doesn't feel she matters, and she's going to leave you. And then all you're going to have is the bottle, and in the end, the bottle is cold. It, it's not really going to feed you. It just numbs you out, and he starts to cry. Right, so. Addiction is like us trying to deal with our fear and our loneliness and our sense of abandonment without including other people because other people are too dangerous. Yeah. So we, tu- we turn to I mean, sex addiction. You know, if you'd asked me um, five years ago if I believed in sex addiction, I'd say as a psychologist looking at sort of the concepts, I'm not sure. I don't believe that anymore. If you ask me now, I say absolutely it's 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 just taking over clinics in North America. It's ta- I live in a middle conservative government town of Ottawa. I live in the capital, and it's like, are you kidding me? We're we're inundated with it. Okay, mm-hmm. so addiction is like a substitute for this sense of attachment. And what we find is we help people see it that way. We help them get some help with their addiction because it's a lot of work to wean yourself off something like that. And then we help them create the positive peace which is a good relationship he can turn to his partner when the world feels too big for him instead of reaching for a bottle you know and and she understands his demons and this is about how in good relationships it's not just about the high and the happiness and the well-being it's about the fact and i see this when i work with couples people grow each other we grow we thrive in relationships you know, one of the reasons I love doing couples therapy still after 35 years is I watch partners not just create hold me tight conversations and this safety. I watch them grow each other. You know, like mm. I, you know, the Navy SEAL who says to his wife, you know, I love this job and I'm good at it. And, and I can't, I know I can't do it forever because there are ghosts that come for me about the things I've done. There are ghosts that come for me, and I don't know what to do with those ghosts. And to know that I can come to you and that you'll hear me and that you'll accept me and you'll accept those bad things that happened in that village when I made a mistake, right? And that you and I can turn to you with that. That changes everything for me. And then I'm not alone with that. And, you know, when he does that, he gets stronger as a man. He gets more whole as a human being. And his wife actually says to him, I'm honored that you show me your heart like that. I'm honored that you would bring that to me. Mm. And, and you watch her grow. She becomes more confident. Wow, am I important to this man? Wow, you know, I can, and I can do this. I can help this man with, with his ghost. Wow. And you see them. You just see people grow. This is our natural, if you like, this is our ecological niche. Our ecological niche is the family and this bonding, you know, that we can create as adults. It's, we can face everything that way. We even did a study with couples where one person was dying in the hospital in Toronto. Um, it's all on our um, ICEFT website. It's, that's the professional website. We have International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. That's a mouthful, isn't it? But, you know, um, it's, but, you know we, we did a study and we found that um, doing these hold me tight conversations helped the person who was dying 
face wow. death because we can face death, but we can't face death alone. And that's yeah. the truth. And it helped the person who was grieving and it helped them recover faster and deal with the death. So this is about who we are as human beings. You know, we, need to, we need to wake up to who we are as human beings because we're creating um, a more and more impersonal, lonely world. And if we keep doing that, I don't think we need to worry about climate change. <laughs> right, totally. I think we'll, we'll self-implode. If we don't understand about relationships, um, we'll self-implode way before, uh, you know, the world yeah. disappears in terms of, yeah. I think right. we're, we, this stuff, but then I'm a bit passionate about this stuff. As you Sue, let me just say something. Um, th this interview is so valuable and so incredible. Um, and I love your passion. And I would love to have you back soon because I got like three of probably 15 questions answered. Uh, just be, and your answers are just so detailed and they're um, backed up with actual data versus just, um, you know, concepts that you think may or may not be true. And I just think, you know, your, your entire, all your work, everything you're doing, I want everyone to know about it. Now, as far as your website, I believe it's drdrsuejohnson.com. That's right. And there's lots of little, there's lots of little clips on there. There's lots of little, you know, clips and, and there's lots of stuff on there basically. Yeah. Amazing. Well guys, come on over to Dr. Sue Johnson, Dr. Sue Johnson. That's S U E J O H N S O N. Dr. Sue Johnson.com. Get, hold me tight. If you want to know how to do all this stuff that we're talking about, <laughs> I'm screaming this book from the rooftops. This book is a, just a, such an incredible book. Game changer. Dr. Sue Johnson. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm You're welcome. It was fun. Awesome.